Welcome or welcome back to the Bridge Churches podcast, where we are committed to building irresistible bridges between the unchurched and Jesus Christ. We are so glad that you're here, and wherever you're listening from, we hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. This series is dedicated to presenting us ways to help read and interpret the Bible, understanding what it is and how we should read it. If you're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or any other social media platforms, please give us a like and follow on our page at Bridge Churches to stay up to date and what's happening in and around our church. Thank you so much for joining us today. Let's jump right in because we really believe that the Bible is God's word and the hope for you, the prayer for you is that you would actually get to the point in your journey of faith where you would experience the Bible for yourself. That this moment is good, there's value in it. We love gathering together in the community and the opportunity to open up the word and talk about what God might have to say to us. But if all of this went away tomorrow, um, the good news is that you can experience the Bible for yourself and that God wants to speak to you through it. And so this series has really been about that. And uh, again, we've talked about a lot of practical stuff. Last week, we talked about how to choose a translation you can understand. We talked about um, how to you know pick a format or choose a format that you can engage with easily. Last week, I shared with you the number one mistake people make when reading the Bible. So lots of practical stuff for you to go back and take in. But today, today what we're going to talk about is how do you actually get something out of the text? Okay, because for now, up until now, we've been talking about how to get into the text, but now I want to talk about how do you actually get something out of it? And so what we're going to do in order to answer that question, how do you get something out of the text? We're going to continue to focus on the two things that we've been focusing on throughout this series. And those two things are technique and posture, technique and posture. Technique being your ability to understand the basics of what you're reading and posture being the attitude or the posture of your heart as you read the text. So with technique and posture, we're gonna talk about how do you get something out of the text? And what we're gonna do for the first part of the message is I'm actually gonna let you do, some, uh, do something that I've never done. And it's, I'm gonna give you the opportunity to get inside my brain. How scary is that, right? My mom is sitting right over there and she's like, that's really scary. Um, But I'm gonna let you inside my brain and I'm gonna let you see how I see the text and I'm gonna kind of walk through that and then I'm gonna teach you how to get something out of the text, okay? And so when you sit down to open the Bible, you you open it up and you're like, I don't even know where to start. I'm gonna show you where to start and I'm gonna show you how to get something out of the text. It's a way, it's not the only way, um, but it's the way that I do it. It's the way that I've done it for years. So we're gonna talk about it at the beginning and then I'm gonna talk a little bit about the posture of our heart. Now that you know how to get something out of the text, what should the posture of our hearts be as we get something out of the text? So it's gonna be a jam-packed 30 minutes or so as we close out the series and I get on vacation. And so let's jump in. How do you get something out of the text? What is the technique to get something out of the text? It's a really good question. As I said, I'm gonna show you something. This is something I've done for years. Uh, It's not the only way, but it's the way that Scott does it. And it's something called the inductive approach. The inductive approach. Now there's lots of different formats to this. I'm gonna show you the one that I use. Um, It's really, really simple. This is how I view a text. The first thing that you need is you need to look at context. Why? Because as we said last week, context, context, context. Context is to scripture um, what location is to real estate. When you open up the scriptures, you want to know uh, what is this text that I'm reading? Where is it coming from? Where is it going? You know, what kind of uh, literature is it? All those things we talked about last week, you want to understand context. The second thing to look at is observation. You want to look at observation. Um, What am I seeing? What do I see here? What are the names that I see here? The places that I see here? Um, What kind of phrases are sticking out? What kind of words are being repeated? When I think of observation, I think of two C's. Um, I 
think of curiosity. Like, what is it that's making me curious about this text? What are the questions that it's bringing to mind? And I also try to think cinematically, okay? Like, what I try to close my eyes and picture myself in the scene. Like, what do I see? What do I hear? What kind of time of day is it? What do I smell? What are the facial expressions of the people that are talking? The facial expressions of the people that are listening as all of this unfolds in real time. Try to think cinematically, and I try to think with curiosity. The next thing, step three, is meaning. What does this actually mean? Like when I sit down to read the Bible, what is it saying? What does it actually mean for me as I read it? You wanna understand meaning. And then the last thing, step four, is application. Uh, What is this saying to me? Uh, What is this requiring of me? What is this asking me to do? How is this trying to change me? Now, if you're gonna try to remember um, what this all is and how to remember this inductive approach, the easiest way to remember it is it spells coma. Um, That doesn't really, there's no real meaning around that. Maybe you feel like you're drifting into a coma right now. I don't know. But but this is the easiest way to think of it, uh, coma. And if you can just kind of keep that in your mind, um, and I know all laughing aside, this is actually gonna help you answer the question, how do I get something out of the text? And so what I wanna do right now is I wanna take this approach, I wanna take this coma and snap out of the coma, and I want us to jump into a passage of scripture together, and I'm gonna read it to you, we're gonna walk through it together, and I'm gonna show you how to get something out of the text, okay? We're gonna start in Genesis chapter three, and uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna show you how to get something out of the text. This is a challenging one, but I feel like you're awake, you're caffeinated, you're ready to go. Um, So we're gonna jump in Genesis chapter three. Now, the first thing we gotta ask and answer is, what is the context, right? What is C of coma, context? What is the context of Genesis chapter three? Well, last week, the most important thing that we said is that we first have to acknowledge and remember that the Bible is not a book, Okay, many people think the Bible is a book, but it is actually a collection of books. It's 66 books to be specific. The Bible is a collection of books that have been put together that tell a unified story that point us to Jesus. And so as you're trying to think about context, one of the first things you need to think about and ask and answer is, what is it or where in this unified story that points to Jesus, where am I in this story? Now, to help us with that, last week, we looked at something that a theologian named N.T. Wright put together. It's called the five-act story of the Bible. And this is it right here. And he said, basically, the Bible can be summarized in five acts. And so when you're reading and you're trying to pull out context, the first thing to do is, where am I in this five-act story, this unified story that points to Jesus? Well, last week, we talked about Genesis chapter 1. Now, one of the questions that we think about, this is the narrative context, but something else to consider when we're asking ourselves and talking about context is what is the literary context? There are essentially three different categories of writing that we find in the scripture. There's narrative, there's poetry, and there's discourse. And you wanna ask yourself, what type of literature am I reading as I read this particular passage of scripture? Last week I shared that Genesis chapter one in the original text is actually a beautiful poem. That if you read the original text of Genesis chapter one, it's a beautiful poem that tells us the story of creation. And many times the reason that people struggle with Genesis one is that they try to read it like a science textbook, but that is not how it was written. Certainly not how it was intended to be read. It was actually in its original text, poetry. And so you have to understand not only what am I reading, but what kind of literature is it? And Genesis one is actually act one. It tells us the creation of the world. And then Genesis two tells us the creation of humanity beginning with Adam and Eve. Adam in the Hebrew, which means human from the dirt, and Eve, which means life in the Hebrew. That's what those names mean. And Genesis 2 tells us the story. We see that they were living together. They were in relationship with God. 
And then we get to Genesis 3, which is actually the beginning of Act 2, which we refer to as the fall. This is where mankind through Adam and Eve for the very first time turned their back on God. And that is the context, that is the setup for where we're gonna jump in together in Genesis 3. And with the inductive approach, we're gonna walk through it together and I'm gonna show you how to get something out of the text. Are you ready? Seatbelts fastened? Here we go. All right. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now, when you look at this, we've already talked about context. So let's talk about observation. What do you see? What are the words that jump out to you? What are the phrases that jump out to you? Well, I went through this process myself before, you know, today, and here's some of the things that jumped out to me. The first was the word shrewd or shrewdest. That word jumped out to me. The serpent was the shrewdest, cunning, conniving, not to be trusted. And the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. The Lord, this is a created being that the Lord had made. And of that was the shrewdest. One day he asked the woman, and we just need to stop right there. One day he asked the woman, like some of you are sitting there going, this is my first time in church or maybe my first time in church in a long time and already you're talking about talking snakes. Like I don't, you know, I'm not really into the whole, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and Lord of the Rings or whatever it is for you. I get that, okay? But what you need to understand as you read the scripture is some of this is symbolic and the serpent is symbolic of evil, symbolic of Satan, the devil, and he, it, whatever, is tempting Eve. And I get that that might be a huge kind of, you know, mental gymnastics that you got to do. I get that. Just hang with me through this scripture. But it says, one day he asked the woman, did God really say, did God really say that? Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees? And I circled the word fruit because that word is repeated throughout Genesis chapter three. It's significant. But did God really say? That's a phrase that really jumps out to me. Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat the fruit. Now, when you stand back from this, as for you, you're sitting there and you're looking at it, you're taking it from a distance. And for those of you at home, please join in from wherever you are. What do you think the meaning of this is? Like what meaning can you see in this? What meaning can you pull out of this? You look at some of these phrases, some of these words, is there something that jumps out to you? You kind of begin to put it together. What does this actually mean? Well, there's lots of meaning that you can pull out of this. In fact, that's why people like me make a living on talking about the same stories for years. But there's lots of meaning that you can pull out of this. And one of the things that I wrote down that relates to meaning for me is this. Um, seeds of mistrust are shrewdly planted. It's, it's not blatant. It's not obvious, but it's, it's shrewd. It's, it's manipulative. The seeds of mistrust are shrewdly planted. And you see, did God really say that? Are you sure God said that? Think about it. Did, would God really, like, did God really say that? It's, it's seeds of mistrust and they're being planted, but they're planted, not obviously, but shrewdly. Now the story goes on, of course, that we can eat, uh, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, the woman replied. So she says, of course, she's certain. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it for if you do, you will die. What sticks out to you? What jumps off the screen or off the pages to you? See, this is interesting and it's also important. It's not gonna be the same for all of us. And that's the amazing thing about scripture. As, as you read the Bible, as you get older, as times in your life change, different things are gonna jump off the page to you. You're gonna notice different things, whether it might be the season of your life, the circumstance you find yourself in, it's never gonna be the same for you. And that's why you read the Bible over a lifetime. 
It's not like, oh yeah, I know that story. I'm never gonna read it again. It's not like when you watch a movie, you know, and you're like, oh, I've seen that movie. I don't even ever need to see it again. It's like, this is why the Bible is something you read over the course of your lifetime because it becomes new and fresh depending on what may or may not be happening in your life. And God will speak to you today in a way that's different from what he might've said to you in the past. So when you look at this, what do you see? What words jump out to you? What phrases stand out to you? Well, for me, there were a number. I go back, I continue to circle the word fruit because it's interesting to me that something so temporal would be so significant in this really important story. Fruit continues to be repeated. There are other things I wanna continue. Show on the next, go back there one. It's only, this really stood out to me. It's only, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. I also noted that God said, Eve said, God said, she knew what God said. And Adam is there as well, which we're gonna see in a minute. They knew what God said. It's only this tree. It's only this fruit that we're not allowed to eat. Now, what does this mean? As you read this, what is some meaning that we can pull from this? What meaning do we see in this story? For me, it all centered around this issue of trust. And that mistrust always begins around one guardrail. It's only that one thing. It's only this one. We can and we have access to all of this. There's just one thing that we're not allowed to have. And that one thing is the one thing, is the one place that Satan shows up and begins to speak to. It's always that one thing. If you're a parent, you know this. You tell your kid, it's all, you can do what, but you can't do that. And what is this thing they want to do? That one thing. The mistrust always begins. It always comes down to one issue. And that's where it begins. The story goes on. You won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. What jumps off the screen? What jumps off the page? What words jumped out to you? What phrases jumped out to you. There's so many, and I can continue going. You won't die. This is a clear lie. Now, everything is we're about to see that Satan tells Eve, it is not all a lie, but it's being shrewdly planted. This mistrust is being planted. You, you won't die, he replied to the woman. God knows. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God. You you won't be God, but you will be like God. That's what he says to her. Your eyes are gonna be open. You're gonna be like God. And I circled eyes being opened. Again, eyes is, you know, is an important thing here. And clearly he's not talking about physical eyes. He's talking about spiritual eyes. And your eyes are gonna be opened and you are gonna be like God. Now, again, as you stand there, as you sit there and you look at this, what in the world does this mean? What is this trying to say? What is the meaning of this? And again, I think what this means, what this says to me as I read it really quickly, this is all centered around a lie. It's a lie that the serpent is telling Eve, but it's a lie that you've heard in your head and you've heard in your heart because I've heard the same lie. And the lie is this, God is withholding something from you. God is trying to keep something from you, but there's something that God knows or something that God has and he's keeping it. God is holding out on you. You should be the one in charge. God's keeping you. Do you know why God said that? The reason why God said that is because there's something he's keeping from you. There's something he doesn't want you to know. There's something that he doesn't want you to have. God's trying to hold out on you. You should be in charge. Well, the woman, she was convinced. She was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. We're going, we're going through this quickly, but... What do you see? What phrases stick out to you? What words stick out to you? For me, the woman, it was, she was convinced. This is the turning point. Adam and Eve were convinced that the serpent was telling them the truth, which means the implication being 
that God was not. The serpent was telling them the truth, which means that God had not told them the truth. More stands out to me. She saw, again, we see the word fruit, but she wanted not the fruit, but she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. There was something that she wanted. There was something that she didn't have that she was convinced that she could have. So she took the fruit and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her, as we said, and he ate it too. Now, what does all this mean? I mean, when you stand back and you look at it, it's pretty obvious, right? Satan himself had to tempt Eve, but a naked woman tempted Adam. That's really what you, what you take a... Uh, I'm going to be away for two weeks, so if you're going to, if you're going to email cmcnaughton at bridgechurches.ca, uh, right? Like, what, what is the meaning? Like, what do you see here? It's powerful. It jumps right off the page to me. The meaning, when trust is in question, I can convince myself of anything. Isn't that true? When trust is compromised, when trust is in question, I can convince myself of anything. You know that in your relationships, right? When there's trust that's been broken, when there's trust that's eroding, when there's trust that's been compromised or in question, you can convince yourself of just about anything and justify just about anything you do or don't do. Why? Because there's no trust. And all of a sudden we can begin to do that. And that's exactly what happened to Eve. And at that moment, the scripture tells us that their eyes were opened just like they were told would happen. And they suddenly felt shame. Not this wisdom that they thought they were gonna get. They felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. There's so much here to kind of observe quickly. Look at this. I circled a few things and highlighted some things. Their eyes were opened. Again, that's what they were told was gonna happen. So they weren't told a complete lie, but they were manipulated with pieces of truth and pieces of lies. Their eyes were opened. Suddenly they felt shame. They were ashamed. They went ahead, they took what they wanted because of what they wanted, they ate the fruit and immediately they experienced not wisdom, but shame. They sewed fig leaves together, why? Because for the first time they felt this instinct to cover themselves. They had always been that way, but they had never seen themselves that way and their eyes in fact were open. So what does this mean? What does this have to say to us? What meaning do you pull out of this? Well, again, there's a number of different meanings that you could pull out of this and it won't be the same for all of us. But it's just an example. When they saw themselves as they really were on the inside, not just physically on the outside, but they began to see themselves immediately as they really were on the inside, they experienced shame. That because of what they did, the mistake they made, the sin that they committed, when they, in that moment, they experienced something they had never experienced before, They saw themselves as they really were on the outside, but more importantly, on the inside. And they saw that by their action, they had broken this perfect relationship and communion that they had with God. And as a result of that disconnect in their relationship with God, they experienced and felt shame. Now, what can we take away from this in terms of application? What does this mean for you and I today? What is this saying to you and I today? What is this trying to show us and reveal to us about ourselves? What can I take from Genesis 3 and apply to my life? What can you take and apply to your life? So much. There's so much application here. But one piece of application that I think is important is that the root of sin, the root of sin is a lack of trust in what God has said. They knew what God had said. 
But over time, they began, because of these shrewdly planted seeds of mistrust, they began to question. It wasn't, the mistake wasn't that they ate the fruit. The mistake happened long before that. The mistake happened when they began to question, did God really say that? They were tempted to think that. And then as they stewed on that and they thought about, did God really say that? Did God really, wait a minute, is God holding out on me? Is God withholding something from me? Does God really have my best interest at heart? Maybe I should be the one who is like God. Maybe I should have the same wisdom. I bet if I had that same wisdom that God had, I would do better with my life because I want to be in control. And see, the amazing thing about this application is that it speaks to the posture of our heart because this isn't just about technique. It's also about posture the posture of our heart, the attitude, the state of our heart as we read the scripture. And as I do this, think about this application, it begins to further question me as I look in the mirror and use scripture as a mirror to see myself. And the question that I begin to ask myself is, do I read the Bible to get what I want to get out of it? Or do I come to it with a posture, with an attitude of trust? If and when you take the Bible down from your shelf or if and when you open that Bible app on your phone and you look at the words on the screen, or the words on the page, do you actually not just know what it says, but do you trust what it says? Do you trust it? Are you willing not just to read it and understand it, but are you willing to read it and surrender to it, to submit your life to it? Do you trust? What, the, what would it mean? What would it look like for you to open up the scriptures and say, I have full trust in what this says? And when I read it, no matter how much it challenges me, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much I wanna push back and say, I don't know that I agree with that or that was for, I'm gonna choose to trust and I'm gonna live my life by what this teaches and says about me. The reason I'm saying this is because what happens so many times when that time comes that you do open the Bible for yourself and you start to read it, when you start to read the Bible for yourself, we start to say things to ourselves and we start to ask questions of ourselves. And ultimately, all those statements and all those questions are an issue of trust. It's not knowledge. It's not our information. It's our trust and our willingness to submit. We ask ourselves all kinds of things that are issues of trust. We say these things like this. Did God really say? Did God really say that? Right? Did, did God really mean that? That's probably for somebody else. Or you know what? That was a long time ago. The Old Testament days, that doesn't apply to us today. It meant that then, but it doesn't mean that now. Did God really say? I know when I read the Bible and it talks about relationships, I know we shouldn't be sleeping together before we're married, but did it really say that? Did it really mean that? Because after all, it's only, right? It's only I know the Bible says I should be doing this or I shouldn't be doing that, but it's only this and it's only that. It's only one time. It's only one instance. It's just a little bit over the line, right? But come on, is that trust? Is that trust? Think about the relationships in your life that matter most to you. How well would they go? How healthy would they be if someone in that relationship justified their actions or their inaction by, it's only that relationship work? Is there trust in that relationship if that person that you care about said, oh, but it's only this, it's only a little bit of that, right? Chances are it's gonna impact the relationship even though it's only, it's gonna impact it significantly. And don't we say this all the time? to justify what we do and justify what we don't do. Oh, it's only, it's only this. It's only a little bit of that. We also say, I'm missing out. You ever said that? I'm missing out. 
I'm missing out. I mean, it's only a couple times a year where we all get smashed. It's no big deal. I know what the Bible says about not, but come on, it's not that big a deal, right? And if I don't do it, I'm missing out. Everyone else is doing it. If, I, if I'm irrationally generous, like the scripture says, right? I'm missing out. I'm gonna miss out on the things that my friends do and the things that some of my friends have. I'm not gonna be able to have that boat or drive that truck. I'm not gonna be able to live in that house or go on that vacation. I'm gonna miss out if I do. And I don't know, did it really say that? Because if it did, and if I do, I'm gonna miss out. What about this one? What about my truth, right? What about my truth? I wanna live my truth. I know that's what the Bible says. I know that that's the Bible truth, but what about me? What about mine? What about my truth? What about the way that I see the world and the way I see what I want to do and the way I see what, what about my truth? See, all this ultimately is an issue of trust, isn't it? Do you trust? Not do you know what the scriptures say? That's important. But after you know what they say, do you trust what they say? Because ultimately all of this comes down to not just technique and information, but submission and trust. Thomas Jefferson was once president of the United States. And after he was president, he created something called the Jefferson Bible. And what the Jefferson Bible is, essentially Thomas Jefferson, after he was president, I don't know if he would have done this when he was president, but he maybe would. He took the Bible and all the parts that he didn't like, all the parts that he didn't agree with, all the parts that he struggled with, this is what he did. He just cut them out. You can actually see this Bible today at the Smithsonian. He took the parts, the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, which I would argue is pretty important. He took other parts of the Bible that he didn't like or didn't understand or that he really, and he just cut them out. And some of you are giggling about that right now. Some of you are rolling your eyes and shaking your head only in America, right? Like you're kind of, we roll our eyes and we shake our heads and we giggle a little bit, but come on, I have to ask myself, don't I do that in my life? Ask yourself, do you do that in yours? Oh, you wouldn't do it with a pair of scissors. You're far too reverent for that. But we do it in here, don't we? And we do it in here. Did God really say that? That's probably for somebody else. I don't think it means today what it meant then, right? It's an issue of trust. And see, my hope for you in this series, my prayer for you throughout this series is that you would begin to experience the Bible for yourself because when you do, as you do, I believe it's then and there that you will begin to experience a relationship with God for yourself. And that's my desire, but ultimately it comes down to an issue, not of technique. It comes down to an issue of trust. Trust is the key to experiencing God through the Bible. Trust is the key to experiencing God through the Bible. Ultimately, it comes down to an issue of trust. Do I trust, not do I just know what this is? Do I trust what this says? Am I willing to place my trust, my confidence, my belief, my faith in what this is telling me and what this is saying to me about me? Do I trust it? Because as you read the Bible, if and when you do, you will read story after story of men and women who like you and like Adam and Eve found themselves in a position where God wanted them to do a certain thing, live a certain way, change a certain thing or act a certain way and routinely, they continually said, I don't know if I trust this. I don't know if I believe this. I don't know if I'm really willing to submit this. And at the end of the day, you follow their story all the way to the end. Ultimately, they usually felt the exact same thing that Adam and Eve felt. They felt shame, guilt, 
Regret, regret because God said, this is what I want you to do. This is the way I want you to go. This is how I want you to live. And instead they said, ah, it's only, what about my truth? I'm not really sure I believe that. That was probably for somebody else. I'm not comfortable with that. That's too hard. That's too challenging. I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I'm willing to submit to that. And so they did, and like we do our own thing. And ultimately they end up in a place where they look back and they have shame, they have regret, they have guilt. And God is saying, oh, the whole reason I said this isn't so that you would just know these stories. The reason I've said this is so that you would know what it means for you and how I want you to live. And because you didn't, now you felt exactly what they've all felt, guilt, shame, and regret. Now, thankfully, thankfully, every story in the scripture isn't tragic. (laughs) Thankfully, there's one story that gives us Hope. There's one story that points us to a better way. There's one story of a man who was tempted, I would argue, in the exact same way that Adam and Eve were tempted. Only the difference was this person, this person acted in a completely different way and experienced something completely different. And the reason was, was because he trusted the scriptures and he did what they said. I want to show you. I want to show you. In Matthew chapter 4, we see a famous passage of scripture that talks and shows us the story of Jesus in Act 4, the story of Jesus in Matthew 4, where he was tempted just like Adam and Eve were tempted, only he came out on the other side of that temptation in a very different way. And I want us to look at it together. Matthew chapter four, what is the context? Well, the context is we're reading in the beginning of the New Testament, we're in act four of this unified story that points us to Jesus. It's about Jesus. So amazingly, it's found in act four where we learn about Jesus. And here we're reading this narrative, this story of this experience that Jesus had, this encounter that he had. He's just been baptized Okay, he's just been baptized and he's about to begin his earthly ministry. He's being led by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness, into the desert to be tempted. Now we could just stop right there, okay? Right, the meaning, the observation, the application, all of it is overwhelming. When you experience a spiritual high in your life, you are susceptible, you are at risk to temptation. And many of you know that this is true. You've come to a service like this and you felt like somehow, some way like God was speaking to you or you had some sort of clarity about some area in your life. Maybe you've, um, you've gone to a concert or maybe a women's retreat or a men's conference. Maybe you've been baptized and you came up out of the water and everybody was cheering and you felt alive. You're like, I'm ready to take on hell with a squirt gun. Like you were just so energized and you're like, God, you know, this whole thing. And then the next thing you went home and all of a sudden like the rug gets pulled out from you and you experienced this blindsided temptation that you couldn't even, like, where did that come from? It's exactly where Jesus finds himself in Matthew chapter four. It says, then Jesus was led by the spirit. And you got to do a lot of mental gymnastics with that one. That Jesus himself was led by the spirit of God into the wilderness for the purpose of to be tempted by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry in his humanity. He was hungry. 40 days, 40 nights. There's some of you that can't miss a lunch, right? 40 days, 40 nights. He is starving. He is so hungry. And during that time, the devil came to him and said, if you are the son of God, ooh, if. How many of you like to be challenged? 
How many of you like to be confronted? Not me. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. There's so much at work here. There's so much at play here. If you are, in so many ways, this is so similar to Adam and Eve. Did God really lead you out here? Would God really do that to you? If he did, he certainly wouldn't want you to starve. And after all, it's only, it's only one piece of bread. It, the, Eve, didn't that, doesn't that fruit look good? Jesus, doesn't a piece of bread sound good? I'm not asking you to make a steak dinner. It's just a piece of bread. It's only, God certainly wouldn't want you to starve, right? What does Jesus do? How does Jesus respond? He responds by what he knows is true in scripture. He not only trusts it, but he actually quotes it, a passage of scripture from Deuteronomy. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say, the scriptures say, people do not live, not just physical life, but people don't live by bread alone, but by every word. See how much he trusts the scripture that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says, look, I know what the scripture says. And I know that in this moment, the scriptures can be trusted no matter what seems to be happening, no matter how difficult the situation or circumstance is. I know that the scriptures can be trusted and I'm gonna put my trust and my confidence in what they say, regardless of what does or doesn't happen to me. Strike one. So then the devil took him. The devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if... He's pushing his buttons again. If, come on, Jesus, if you are the son of God, jump off. What do you see here? What do you observe here? Just jump off. We are back at the same place. If you are the son, surely nothing's gonna happen to you, right? Nothing's gonna happen to you. If God really said this, he's not gonna let anything happen to you. Why don't you just prove it? Why don't you just show us? Show me, it's not that big a deal. And Jesus continues to be tempted by the devil. And this is where the devil just really digs in. The devil says, for the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you and they will not hold you with their hands so you won't even hit, hurt your foot on a stone. What's happening here? Who's quoting scripture? This is right out of the Psalms. Who's quoting scripture? It's not Jesus. The devil is quoting scripture. The only thing is that he's missing what? Context, context, context. The devil is ripping this right out of context from the book of Psalms to manipulate Jesus. Come on, Jesus. It's only, God's not gonna let it. Did God really say, if he really said that, he's not gonna let it. Come on, show us, jump. Jesus says, I know what the scriptures say. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord. You're trying to get me to test God. You're trying to manipulate things to get me to force God's hand. I'm not gonna do it. You must not test the Lord your God. I know what the scriptures say. I know that you've pulled this out of context. I know that you're trying to manipulate me, but I know what the scriptures say, not just in a one line. I know what they say as a whole, and I'm gonna continue to put my trust in what they say. Strike two. So next, the devil took him, took him to the high peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of all the world and their glory. How did he do that? I don't know. Was it some big IMAX screen? I don't know how it worked, but he says, I will give it all. I will give it all to you. He said, if you will kneel down and worship me. What is he saying? God's holding out on you, Jesus. I know why you're here. I know why you're here, Jesus. You have come to reclaim everything that was lost in the garden. I know you're on the way to the cross to get it. 
but God's holding out on you. Jesus, there's another way. No shame, no pain, no cross, no death. You can have it all, everything you came for. But what God doesn't want you to know is that there's another way you can get it. And all you gotta do is bow down, kneel down and worship me. And Jesus looks at him. And with his best Clint Eastwood eyes, he's like, no, I know what the scriptures say. Get out of here, Satan. I love that. That translation, I just know it was just like Jesus probably just stepped up and stepped out and stepped in and said, get out of here, Satan. For the scriptures say, again, the scriptures say, you must not, or you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. I know what you're trying to do, but I know what the scripture says. I know who I can trust and I know who ultimately is in control and in charge. So strike three, you're out. So the devil left, he went away and the angels came. See, Jesus was alone. This is important. The angels weren't there. He was alone in this fight. The devil left, the angels came and they took care of Jesus. And here's what I want you to get. Oh, this is so important. Jesus models to us what the posture of our hearts should be towards the scriptures. He models to us how we should view the scriptures, how we should approach the scriptures. Jesus didn't just read the Bible. Jesus trusted the Bible as God's word. Jesus modeled biblical authority. You could say he submitted to it. He surrendered to it. He was fully devoted, fully committed. He didn't just read the Bible. He didn't just teach from the Bible. He trusted it as God's word. He said, I'm gonna trust what the scriptures say. I'm gonna believe in what the scriptures say and I'm gonna submit my life to what the scriptures say, no matter what does or doesn't happen to me. And the application for you, the application for me, the application for all of us is simple. How do we have that same experience? How do we, how do you, how do I, how do you experience God through the Bible? Not just how do you read the Bible? How do you understand it? That's important. But how do you actually have an experience with God through the Bible? To answer that question, I wanna go back as we close this series, I wanna go back to the very beginning, something I said at the very beginning of the series, that the Bible is for you when it comes to God and it's for God when it comes to you. The Bible is for God when it comes to you. If you wanna know what God is like, if you wanna know who God is, if you wanna know more about Jesus and try to understand the Old Testament, if you wanna know about end times prophecy, if you wanna know how to deal with anxiety and what God says about your marriage and about your relationships, about the car you drive, the money you have or you don't have, if you wanna know what God has to say, I'm telling you, the Bible is for you when it comes to God. Everything that you want to know is there, I promise. But it's for God when it comes to you. The Bible is for God when it comes to you. God has things he wants to say to you. God has things he wants to say about your life. God has things he wants to speak into your life. God has things he wants to challenge you on in your life. And as you read the scripture, if you have a little bit of technique to understand the basics of what you're reading and you combine that with a posture of trust and a willingness to submit and surrender, I promise you, that God will speak to you through the scriptures. And I promise you when he does, it's gonna mess with your life. I promise you, it's absolutely gonna mess with your life. 
If it isn't, if it doesn't, that's a whole other question. But when you come to the scripture, see, when you come to it, information, um, information is all about technique. So this is the thing. Information is all about technique. And I can show you technique, red and yellow circles, blue rectangles, underlining, Greek, Hebrew, the whole, I can do the whole thing with you. We can spend time together and I can show you all that stuff and it matters and it's important. It's really necessary to have some technique, but what you walk away, if you simply have technique, what you walk away with is simply information. Information is good, but in and of itself, it is not enough. But ultimately transformation is a result. It is an issue of trust. Yes, you wanna have technique to know what it says, but ultimately you need trust for it to shape your life. God, I not only know what this says, but I'm willing to trust and then live what it says. And trust is ultimately a relational issue, right? You can know a lot about marriage and not have a good marriage because ultimately the information about marriage is not enough. You need trust in the relationship. Do you trust the God who wants to have a relationship with you? Do you trust what he has said to you through his word? This is so important. A posture of openness allows you to experience the book of the Bible. And that's great. I want you to know that if you wanna start reading the Bible, if you wanna understand the Bible, I can show you some really helpful things to help you experience that and help you do that. And there's a lot of great stuff that you can take away from the Bible, but it's a posture, it's a willingness, it's a posture of submission to the Bible that allows you to experience God through the Bible. It's a willingness to open the book and to read it with a little bit of understanding, but then a posture of trust and a willingness to submit to what it says that changes your life, that transforms your life. And when you do, oh, I promise you, it is gonna mess with your life. It's gonna transform your life because God wants to speak into your life. God wants to speak to you about your identity. God wants to speak to you about your sexuality. God wants to speak to you about your relationships, about the car you drive. God's gonna begin to challenge you on your marriage. And you're gonna say, I can't deal with her anymore, right? Or you're like, I'm so fed up with him. Do you see his underwear and socks all over the floor? And you want me to, what? No, I don't think so. God's gonna mess with your marriage. The more that you go to the scripture with understanding and with a posture of trust and surrender, all of a sudden you're just gonna be like, God, you're messing with my whole world. You're messing with my whole life. You're turning everything upside down. You're sticking your nose in the way I see my neighbors, the way I talk to people at work, the way I spend my money, the way I handle my money, the way I parent, the things that I do, the things that I don't do. Like you're gonna turn my world upside down. And God is going, yes, absolutely. Because I don't want you just to know about me. I wanna be invited into your life and transform your life. I wanna mold you and make you into the person that I created you uniquely to be. And the way I do that is you coming to my word and not only knowing what I've said, but having a willingness to trust in what I've said and a posture of submission to what I've said and allowing me to walk with you and work with you and transform your life. Come on. For those of you that would call yourselves Christians, Maybe you'd say, I've been a Christian my whole life, whatever that means. I've been, I, I've been going to church and I've been doing this my whole life. Look, come on, let me ask you a question. And for those of you that aren't sure what you believe, you're new to church, kicking the tires and the faith thing, this is the question that every professing Christian should ask themselves from time to time. 
When is the last time you read something in the Bible that was hard for you to trust? When was the last time you opened the Bible and you read something and you're like, I don't know about that, God. I don't know if I'm ready for that. That's not for me. That was, it's, it was a different time then, right? You're, like that doesn't mean today what it meant then, or that's not really for me. That's probably for someone else. And because you know why? You know what happens? The longer we follow Jesus over an extended period of time, now we're not Thomas Jefferson, but like him, you know what we start to do? We start to curate the Bible to say what we want it to say. We start to ignore certain parts of the Bible. We, we start to kind of jump over certain parts or, or, or disqualify certain parts. We, we have all these gymnastics things that we can do with the Bible. We would never cut it out. Oh, no, 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 no. We can just ignore it or justify it. And isn't that ultimately an issue of trust? Your heavenly father would say, exactly. You can come to the Bible, you can get answers, you can check off the boxes that say you read it and you know what it says. You can be informed, which is good. Or if you combine your technique with the posture of trust and surrender, it's then and there that you can be transformed. And that is what I want for you. And more importantly, that is what your heavenly father wants for you. And that's why he gave all of us the gift of his word. So here's what I want you to do this week. In light of everything that I've said over the last few weeks, and if you missed any or all of it, go back. I would encourage you to do that. But right now, I'd invite you to snap out of your coma. And for just the next few days, I'd love to invite you to do this. Take coma, take the inductive approach and take a Bible, whether it's on your phone, whether it's a physical copy and start somewhere. You don't know where to start? Start in the book of James. Start in the book of Galatians, maybe the book of Ephesians. Take one of those books, which were originally letters, sit down with them and read them and begin to take this approach. And as you do, you would say, God, I don't even know what I'm good. I don't even know what this is gonna say. In fact, I'm kind of scared to death. I got a feeling you're gonna somehow mess with my life, but I want you to know, I not only wanna know what this says, but I, I'm gonna trust as hard as it might be. I'm gonna trust what it says. And I'm willing to wrestle with you till I get to the place where I actually would live out what it says, no matter how much that may mess with my life and mess with my world and mess with the way I wanna see the world. Because ultimately, God, I trust you. I trust you. That is when you begin to experience not just the book of the Bible, that's when you begin to experience the God of the Bible and you begin to experience God through the Bible. And that, my friends, is my prayer for you. So give it a try. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to be together with these incredible people, these ones, these special people in this room and those on the other side of those cameras. God, all of us, all of us are have the opportunity to, to not only know what you've said, know what your word says, but we actually have an opportunity to be transformed by it. And God, I know that's your desire and you know that that's been my heart to try to communicate through this series. And I just pray somehow, some way that your Holy Spirit has actually spoken, has gone before and spoken to people in this room and people at home. And that God, there are those that are gonna be willing to be courageous enough to open the Bible and begin to try to see it for what it is and not just know what it says, but actually live as it calls us to live. And I pray for each person that is willing and courageous enough to do that, that God, your Holy Spirit 
would do something special in their lives and that God, things would, would open up, their eyes, their minds, their heart would begin to open up and they would experience you and that you would do a work in their lives and that they would look back and see this journey they've been on with you and that you, God, are worthy, not only of our praise, but you are worthy of our trust. Be with each one, I pray in Jesus' name. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. If you have any questions, you're looking for ways to take your next step, please visit us on our website, bridgechurches.ca. Much love, God bless.